Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates, and I'd like you to tune in, turn on, and drop out, at least for the next hour, as we take the first of our trips down the twisting tunnels and kaleidoscopic corridors, the layered labyrinths of the metamorphosizing molecule called D-lysergic acid diethylamide tartrate 25, LSD, acid as most of us would call it. We're in search of some of the stories and characters who made it one of the fluids that fueled the counterculture. Now some of those figures are well known, Hoffman, Owsley, Ken Kesey, Ramdas, and of course Timothy Leary. And some of the locations that feature in the landscape of acid, the Sandoz Laboratories, the Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco, Ken Kesey's farm, may be familiar to us, but I for one did not think that Darlington, an industrial town in the north of England, should be listed amongst those locations, nor that a British man was so influential in the birth and spread of acid in the psychedelic movement. And I'm not talking about Aldous Huxley, that urbane literary figure. I'm talking about the strangely strange creature Michael Holling said, the man who turned on the world, as he described himself rather immodestly, the divine rascal, as his biographer called him. Well, with all trips, it's usually best to have an experienced guide, so I'm very pleased that we have the author of that biography with us to take us through the bizarre, amazing, odd life and times of Michael Hollingshead. Our guest is the psychedelic researcher, Andy Roberts. Hello, Andy. Hi there. Welcome, Andy. I always chicken out when it comes to uh, giving people's biographies less work for me, but also probably more interesting for the listener to hear it from the source. So tell us, who is Andy Roberts? In the real world, I am a project worker, support worker in hostels for homeless people and have been uh, on and off for the past 31 years in one form or another. In my real world, which is a completely different thing, um, I am an author, researcher, investigator into a wide range of, of, of phenomena. Um, I started off life being very, very interested in uh, UFO and, and the UFO mythos. Uh, I've been involved in uh, paranormal research of all kinds. I've done an awful lot of work on um, various sort of arcane British um, strands of music, such as the Incredible String Band and Doctor Strangely Strange. Um, uh, and uh, latterly, over the past sort of 15 years, I've drifted into uh, research into Britain's psychedelic history. Um, and I did that because uh, I've always been had a, a massive interest in, in Britain's psychedelic history and in LSD specifically, and I couldn't believe it in the um, sort of early to mid 2000s when I found that there was no book uh, dealing with the history of, of LSD in Britain. Quite a staggering thing, really. So I thought, well, if I don't write it, who will? And you did write it, and that's the book uh, Albion Dreaming, and I'm hoping that we're going to come back and do a whole episode on that book, on that history. But your book, Divine Rascal, uh, you know, the biography of Michael Hollingshead, is also an amazing uh, piece of psychedelic research. Thank you. And what a life. Um, but before we dig into that life, let's just go back a little bit. The history of the psychedelic movement and acid is so wrapped up with the history of counterculture in the 50s, 60s and 70s that it'd be good to start there. I like to ask our guests just to say a few words about what they understand um, is the meaning of the word counterculture. What do you think? 
very interesting. It just means anything that runs contrary to, um, you know, to the accepted norms of what I like to call the establishment with a capital E, which is the sort of the um, where uh, politics, uh, industry, uh, the military and religion all come together. They form the British establishment, you know, which keeps Britain British and, and you know, gives us the, the, um, the reputation we have in the world, whereas the counterculture is any strand that runs counter to that. So, you know, you, you could have had counterculture three or four hundred years ago when you had the, the levelers for interest, uh, for, uh, for in, in, um, instance, whereas now in the last uh, century we've had, uh, you know, the, the beatniks and then the hippies. So it's people who are um, actively uh, dissatisfied with, with the status quo and believe that there is much more to, you know, their life, uh, society's life uh, and the universe at large. Yeah, that's very much my feeling too. It's like whenever there's consciously been a culture, there's unconsciously been a counterculture that became conscious in itself, I guess, in the 50s, 60s and 70s. And obviously a very important part of that was this psychedelic narrative in which Hollingshead, Michael Hollingshead, played a forgotten but pivotal part. You described him, Andy, as a zealot, a fool, a trickster, a black magician, a charlatan, a genius, a fabulist, a junkie, an alcoholic, a secret agent police informer perhaps, a disruptor, a guru, somebody who was sex mad but didn't understand love. Is that right? It was all those and, and probably a lot of the other things as well and that's what makes him fascinating because you, he cannot be pinned down to, to any one um, sort of archetype or character. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but the thing is, I suppose, if he's famous for anything, he's famous f as being the man who introduced Timothy Leary, the acid guru who was went on to have such an incredible effect uh, on the counterculture in America that he introduced Leary to acid. So why don't we start with that, the truth of that, and then backtrack and find out how Hollingshead got to that place from Darlington. That, as you say, is what most people know about Michael Hollingshead. And, and as I grew up and I was reading all the sort of, you know, stuff about Leary and, and the, um, the psychedelic counterculture in America, his name kept cropping up over and over again saying you know this was the guy who turned uh, Leary onto LSD but very few um, articles or histories mentioned him much past that it was almost as though um, LSD culture was purely the province of America and Britain was just like a, a sideline to all this whereas when you dig into it Britain played a massive role in, in the um, origin of the counterculture in America and th the fact that a um, a guy, a British guy from a very working class family in Darlington was the guy who turned Timothy Leary onto acid. I think is an absolutely amazing thing that, that should be made more of because why him? Why then? You know, why Leary? Leary had, acid, had access to acid before Hollingshead had he chose to do so, yet it took uh, this guy... Um, all his efforts to get hold of Leary to persuade him to take acid and it took him several weeks to get him to take it and then when he had done that really that moment when Hollingshead turned Leary onto acid effectively changed the world because Leary was then responsible for you know spreading it as, as it's become spread today for better or for worse depending on your opinion of Leary. Yeah and I mean Hollingshead rather immodestly described himself as being the man who turned on the world, I suppose because he turned on Leary and Leary had such a big effect. You know, in London we have these blue 
plaques on buildings to commemorate significant historical figures. I'm assuming that in Darlington there isn't a sort of technical or psychedelic one for Hollingshead. Not at all. And strangely, when I was sort of doing research for the book, I, I contacted the local newspaper there and said, did you know that, you know, this guy who, who grew up in Darlington uh, was responsible for turning Leary in the world on? Because I thought they might find it vaguely newsworthy. And after two or three um, emails and, uh, and letters, I didn't get one single response. It's almost as though they, they just don't want to know him. Yeah, right. I suppose it doesn't fit in with the obvious sort of son of the town of the industrial north image, maybe, that they want to portray. Okay, but and it let us back up the truck. Let's go to Darlington and just bring him from there to the States and living with Timothy Leary. Let's fill in that big gap. Okay. Well, Hollingshead was born in, in the early 30s in Darlington. And in the early 30s, I mean, Darlington's not exactly the prettiest of towns these days, but in the early 30s, it was still a very, very grimy um, sort of post-industrial town, famous for um, uh, railways and the uh, hundreds of coal mines that, that were all around the area. It was very much the sort of area that was... Um, a man's man's world, really. You know, you either work down the pit or your family work down the pit or something like that. And Hollingshead's father was a, um, a colliery manager. And by all accounts, uh, and family history is quite hard to come by, incidentally, by all accounts, he was sort of, you know, rough and tough, uh, a man's man, and he didn't suffer fools gladly. And the story that I've heard from uh, Hollingshead's daughter, Vanessa, who heard it in turn from her father, was that um, Hollingshead's father was quite sort of rough and violent and a really heavy drinker, as was the way with many men uh, in that era. And he frequently um, committed acts of domestic violence against his mother. And as Hollingshead grew, uh, grew a little bit older, he... I think he stumbled in on one of these times when um, his father was beating his mother and tried, as, as young children would try to do, to intervene and protect him. And his mother completely turned on him and sort of said, you know, don't ever do that again. You know, ignore what you see. And he said at that moment, or he told his daughter at that moment, that he threw away the key, i.e. he had... He didn't want anything more to do with it, with his family because he just couldn't understand, you know, the, the social dynamic of, of domestic violence and why his mother, um, you know, wanted it wanted him not to get involved in it. Now, you know, in retrospect, um, it's sort of known that this is often the pattern with domestic violence sufferers, that they will um, actively rebel against their children or family if, if they try to stop it. It's just one of those peculiar psychological things. And actually, that's interesting. So at that moment, that was a kind of countercultural moment for him then. So he was was turning against his own culture at that point, presumably. Yes, ab absolutely. And I mean, he, he was at school at that time, obviously. And you know, by all accounts, he, he was he did quite well. He was reasonably intelligent, uh, liked playing football. There's nothing uh, really to mark him out. But then, in I think it was around um, uh, when he was about uh, ten or eleven, I think it was something happened. Now, this is the sort of crux of Hollingshead's life story. Something happened. He did something which led to him being sent to a, uh, for want of a better word, a special school in Surrey. Now, these days you might think, well, yeah, that's fair enough. If somebody does something naughty, they might get sent away. But there are some big problems with this because his family do not know what his remaining family don't know what he did. And the school that he was sent to, which is Red Hill School in Surrey, um, was a school to which only 40 people a year from the whole of Britain uh, went to. And if you read the literature about it, it was for people with extreme um, sort of psychosocial problems, you know, people who have attacked people, uh, sexual offenders uh, and, and social deviants generally. So he must have done something quite... Um, 
bad really to get sent 200 and odd miles from Darlington to this school which is a residential school um, he could only come home at um, school holidays and he was there for, for two or three years So Vanessa, his daughter, never knew what it was that he'd done no, the, the only person alive today who, who knows what he did is uh, his sister, uh, Jeanette, but she um, has been um, uncooperative throughout the whole writing process. I don't think she wanted his story to come out in any way, shape or form, you know, not just the early part of his, his life, but, you know, the, the stuff that he did later. So I've had to piece it together largely from what uh, Vanessa has told me. So that is like sort of two major ruptures with his background then? That's right, at a very early age, you know, sort of pre-teen, which is, you know, someone's formative years. Um, and then, you know, he was sent to this school, this residential school, um, which was um, run on the principles of um, sort of psychoanalysis. Uh, the, the kids there were allowed to call the teachers by their first name. The kids there made their own rules and had their own sort of council in which they decided punishments for people who had broken those rules. It was very, very, very revolutionary for the, um, for, for the 1940s. Um, and Hollingshead seemed to thrive there. Uh, there, there are some um, extant um, examples of the school uh, newspaper, which came, school magazine, which came out two or three times a year. And Hollingshead was a prolific contributor. He wrote poems and he did artwork for it and some sort of quite um, humorous, uh, dry um, skits on, about teachers and so on and so forth. So it was quite obvious that, that he, he really got on in, in that, uh, that environment. Now, when I was doing research, I, I got in touch with... Um, people from that school at uh, that time and managed to get a few people to um, to tell me what he was like and they all said you know he was very very um quite charismatic he was very good at uh um i won't use the word manipulation but at that age he was very good at getting people to do what he wanted them to do he was an extremely good mimic and could, could uh, mimic teachers down to a t to the point where he mimicked one teacher so much that the teacher punched him and not knocked a tooth out um, and he was always at the centre of things that were going on. So from an early age, once he was away from his family, he, he must have thought to himself, this is a big, bad, wide world out here and I'm going to make it work for me. And he just got on and did that. Also, you can see there the roots of what he became as well with the charisma and the, yeah, the ability to either you know manipulate slash kind of uh, influence people, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah right. So, okay, so what happened next then? Well, um, he left... He, left, he was there for three or four years and he left school and we knew he went to national service. Um, he went to national service and originally was stationed um, on the Wirral at the sort of training barracks there. And I have a photograph of him, I think, in the book of him in his uniform with his, uh, his rifle and everything. But unfortunately, I never managed to track his national service records down. Just for anybody who doesn't know, national service was the, the obligatory two-year two period, was it, that all young people, young men at least, had to spend in the armed forces or services, something similar in the post-war period? If they weren't in a reserved occupation, uh, you know, they had to go, do and do this, go and do this two years. So he went into the RAF, uh, we know that, but we don't know what he did there. Um, but the interesting thing about it is the next time we know something about him, when, he, when he's back in London after, uh, after doing his national service, he appears to be fluent in, um, at least in Norwegian and possibly in, uh, in other Scandinavian languages. So the chances are that he did some form of language training whilst he was uh, on national service, because, because otherwise they certainly didn't teach um, those languages at, at the schools he went to, so he must have got that from somewhere. So it's a fair bet that he did that. Now, um, just sort of jumping forward a little bit, a lot of people have sort of tried to imply that Hollingshead 
Richard was in some way, um, you know, working for the government in, in some secret capacity. Um, and people say, well, when he was in national service, that's why you can't find his records, because it's all been hidden away. And that's when he was trained in this, that and the other. So he could be unleashed into the uh, the um, the counterculture when he came out. Um, I don't necessarily believe that, but, but it's an interesting uh, concept because I've never been able to find out one single thing about his national service other than he was in the RAF uh, element of it. Right, well, so mystery is already gathering around him. Yeah. Okay, so and then he he so he finishes with that, returns to civilian life, I guess, whatever you call it. That's right. He spent some time in London for a while, and uh, we think that's where he first met uh, someone who would be very significant in his life later on, uh, uh, Desmond O'Brien, and he had uh, he had some involvement apparently with a theatre company in London, but details are hazy. And then suddenly he appears in. Um, I think he goes to Sweden then and he ends up marrying a uh, a Swedish woman uh, and he's fluent in, in, in Swedish and he ends up on uh, Swedish radio doing um, lots of programmes about Britain, about British literature, about British travel and so on and so forth. And it was quite a, um, I don't know, it's, it's quite well known um, in, in those parts. And I've actually, you know, found some of the, the programmes that, that he did. I haven't got the originals of them, but I found the reference to them in the, their TV schedules. So it, it was a bit of a mover and a shaker. He knew how to, to, to make the most of any opportunity given to him. Um, his marriage in Sweden uh, fell apart, basically. So he came back to London in the late 50s and he hooked up with, um, he hooked up with Desmond O'Brien and he also hooked up with some names that might be p- familiar to listeners, uh, one of whom was Alex Trochy, the, um, the poet and, and writer, and um, the other one was uh, Brian Barrett, who um, was a very early mover and shaker on the British beatnik stroke acid scene. Um, wrote a book called uh, The Road of Excess uh, and he was involved with those people and their thing in, in, the, in the late 50s was they used to drink heavily because um, Hollingshead was a really heavy drinker having sort of learnt that in his upbringing and they also liked to use uh, any other drugs they could get hold of, marijuana if they could, uh, heroin and any, any pills and um, I've heard stories that him and, the, and those uh, three characters used to go to all the, um, the really posh dancers and hotels in London where they would basically pick up very well-off uh, debutants and um, use them for financial purposes to sort of oil their partying and things like that. They're basically, they were a bit of rough to, to the debutants' poshness, if you like, which, you know, in late 1950s London was quite uh, probably thought to be quite thrilling. Anyway, after a while, he got quite bored of all this and he decided to start a new life um, in America. So in, I think it was uh, late 1959, he boarded a ship. His occupation is listed as, as writer, I think, and he, he sailed to, to New York. It's quite amazing already, isn't it, really, for somebody from that background. It reminds me a little bit of that whole sort of late 50s angry young men, so-called angry young men uh, movement, you know, with Kingsley Amis and uh, Stan Barstow and, uh, well, of course, Colin Wilson, the occult writer, and Keith Waterhouse and all those coming, from, you know, coming from the north. Uh, coming down to the south, uh, you know, into a province which had previously been, you know, occupied entirely by rather sort of a bane, uh, middle class, upper middle class. Uh, and then social changes are happening in Great Britain. So you get somebody like Hollingshead coming down and disrupting Yeah, that. I mean, I think he, he probably saw himself in that vein. He was very well read um, for someone who hadn't had, you know, a massive amount of education and certainly not a university education. So he, he knew how to sort of interact in, in those circles. And also, 
every single person that I've ever met have said he was extremely clever probably to sort of genius level. I think when he was, he was at Red Hill School, he had his IQ tested and it was at genius level then. He just seemed to be one of those people who, irrespective of formal education, had a, an innate natural um, in, intelligence that he could apply to, to any um, situation. And because of his talents, uh, you know, in mimicry and, and sort of um, you know, being able to be social with people, he could move at ease between any social strata. And because of his appearance as well, because to look at him, he looks very sort of, um, I suppose, bland and ordinary. He wouldn't be out of place working in a bank if you look at some of his uh, his photographs, even right into the, the 60s and 70s. So he could get away with that sort of thing. Um, and he just saw endless opportunity, uh, which, unfortunately, I think he was a bit sort of mercenary about it. You know, he used things and he used people to get what he wanted and then he moved on to the next thing. And, you know, something uh, drew him to New York in, in the late 50s. He also had, uh, had a friend in London called John Beresford who was, was uh, training as a medical practitioner. And Beresford had moved to, to New York in the mid-50s and taken up a high-ranking position in one of the P paediatric hospitals in, uh, in New York. So uh, Hollingshead knew he had friends there, moved there, and he got hooked up with with Beresford again. Um, he got a flat in uh, in Greenwich Village, and he was sort of living the life of a of an expat in um, in New York. When he got there, he found out that um, that John Beresford had developed a. Uh, a massive interest in basically getting high and he John Beresford was running two separate lives he had one flat where he lived with his wife and then he had another flat which is his sort of weekend party house and he was buying um, all manner of chemicals and drugs because at that time there were very little restriction on anything and there was apparently a shop in um, in Greenwich Village where you could go and buy uh, um, peyote mescaline uh, any form of hallucinogenic cactus, all sorts of things. And so they were doing this and they were having these wild parties where they were getting completely wasted and just seeing what happened. Now, to us these days, that just seems like, you know, what many people do of an average weekend. But in the very, very early 60s, that was very unusual for people to be going at it so intensely. You know, they were really pushing the, the, the boundaries. Yeah, particularly if you're a high-level uh, paediatrician. But I guess that would have given them access to all sorts of pharmaceuticals which weren't available for the general public, right? That's right. And I mean, this is where we sort of come to, to the LSD part of it, because um, Beresford and Hollingshead had heard about LSD and Hollingshead said to, to Beresford, well, you know, we really need to try this because it sounds to be quite fantastic. So um, using Beresford's um, letterheaded notepaper, they ordered some from from Sandoz uh, in New York, which is quite easy to do. All you did was send a letter in, pay your money, and it came back to you by, by post. Okay, so I just thought I would read from Hollingshead's autobiography, autohagiography, uh, we should probably call it, because we don't know whether it's actually accurate or true, but about how, how this whole thing happened. This is in 1960. He says, A small package from Switzerland arrived in the mail one morning, containing one gram of Dr. Hoffman's acid, which I had arranged to be sent to me. There was also a bill for $285. I'd first heard of LSD from Aldous Huxley when I telephoned him at his home in Los Angeles to inquire about obtaining some mescaline, which he'd recently been using. His information also included the name of Dr. Albert Hoffman and a caution, subsequently unheeded, to take great care if I should ever take any of the stuff. It's much more potent than mescaline, though I've used it with some quite astonishing results. 
There had been no difficulty obtaining even one gram of LSD. I simply asked an English doctor friend of mine to write the order on a sheet of New York hospital letterhead saying I needed this ergo derivative as a control drug for a series of bone marrow experiments. Eagerly, I unwrapped the package. The acid was in a small dark jar marked lot number H00047 and in appearance looked a bit like malted milk powder. My problem was how to convert the loose powder into a more manageable form. One gram would make 5,000 individual doses, and I was obviously going to need to measure it out in some way. I decided to randomise it by mixing it into a stiff paste made from icing sugar. I cleared the kitchen table and set to work. First I poured some distilled water into a bowl, and then mixed in the LSD. When all the acid had dissolved, I added confectioner's sugar until the mixture was a thick paste. I then transferred my divine confection, spoon by laborious spoon, into a 16-ounce mayonnaise jar. And by what magical alchemical process the stuff measured exactly 5,000 spoonfuls. In other words, one teaspoon of the stuff ought to contain 200 millionths of a gram, which would be sufficient for an 8-10 to 10 hour session, and a pretty intense one at that. I should ask, add at this point that I had, like all good chefs, been tasting the preparation during its making with my finger. I must have absorbed about the equivalent of five heavy doses before I finally screwed the lid on the mayonnaise jar, which left me somewhat unprepared for what was to follow. He doesn't, uh, he rather narcissistically doesn't mention Beresford there, but uh, what happened next, Andy? Basically, he and Beresford were blasted into outer space, inner space, whatever space you like to call it. And for the next 12 hours, if you read Hollingshead's descriptions, he went through, you know, what what is a, like an archetypal psychedelic experience. He, he left his immediate surroundings, he became a god, he saw evolution, he saw history, everything that was possi- could possibly happen was happening to him. And it was just, it was something he, he couldn't have even countenanced from his previous use of, of any other drug. And when he came down, um, he just thought, well, this is, ama- this is an amazing drug. I, we've got to do something with this. You know, what, what can I do? What can I find out about it? So again, the story goes, and we've never been able to prove this or not. Uh, he says that he then rung up Aldous Huxley because Huxley had written about um, drugs before and was regarded as, you know, an intellectual authority on it. So he allegedly rang Huxley up and Huxley said, the person you need to speak to about this is Tim Leary. And he gave him Leary's details. Now, Hollingshead thought, Fair enough, I'll go see Leary. Um, and at that time, Leary had been, he um, was at Harvard, and he'd been experimenting uh, a lot with uh, psilocybin uh, mushrooms. He'd been to Mexico, he'd been turned on there. He thought psilocybin was the be-all and end-all of psychedelic experiences, um, and w- w- was sort of doing things with it at Harvard. So um, Hollingshead uh, tried to get in touch with him, wrote him a letter, uh, Leary was very gracious and said he would meet him and they, they met in a, in a cafe one lunchtime and Hollingshead sort of spilled his heart out to, to Leary about how he got this new drug and he wanted Leary to try it um, and he'd come to America and he was having all sorts of family problems and you know he, he needed sort of some support using this and Leary said oh yeah I'll, I'll get back to you. Anyway Leary didn't get back to him so Hollingshead being the tenacious sort of guy that he was wrote Leary a letter saying basically if you don't see me uh, by this time next next Wednesday or whatever, I'm going to kill myself, which, you know, is, is a bit extreme. Describe this in the book. It's absolutely extraordinary thing to say. I mean, and and just to, just to back up a little bit, because well, obviously we, we're going to come back to the kind of the, the bigger history of, of acid um, at some future date. But in terms of, you know, 
they'd, him and Beresford are in New York. They've heard about acid. And, of course, you know, acid's been around since 1938 with Hoffman. You know, he discovered it off synthesized it and of course that's kind of what happened with him isn't it is that he sort of did it and then accidentally kind of had licked some and then he goes off on the yeah. massive psychedelic voyage it does seem to be a repeating pattern with acid doesn't it because it's so strong um but and so Lee and you say Leary knew about it Aldous Huxley had done it by this time Maddie. I mean he he'd yeah. he, he'd done it so just to set the scene acids in America it's from during the 50s and they know about it what did they know about it I mean was it in the culture was it were people writing about it I mean who was taking it and because uh, you know you, the way you described it is that Hollingshead sounded surprised at what happened to him yes I mean there's a small coterie of intellectuals and people sort of in the scientific world who, who'd been using it uh, but it, it probably weren't more than I don't know, it's hard to say, probably weren't more than 100 people using it around, you know, the late 50s, early 60s, and they were all being quite secretive about it because some people, like um, Huxley, wanted to keep it to himself and for the elite. He didn't think it should be sort of spread out to the masses because it was so powerful. And then you had um, other people, um, like... um, Al Hubbard, the the, um, the the guy who seemed to have got his acid from strange places, possibly was working for the CIA. The CIA uh, had used it as part of um, MK Ultra, their experiments to try and obtain um, what they thought might be a truth drug, but had abandoned it because it had become just so chaotic and they didn't know how to how to marshal it. So it was a lot of people had their fingers in in the LSD pie, but no one really knew what to do to it, do to do with it. And and as then it hadn't really got out as a recreation. Or, or sort of um, mass spiritual type of, yeah. Uh, of drug. Yeah, I mean, and uh, so Leary at first is not uh, interested or he's not interested enough in acids. He doesn't see the potential somehow. But then he meets Hollingshead, this strange creature from across the water who's proselytising on behalf of acid, which that can be a bit annoying, I suppose. Um, and at the second meeting, you know, Hollingshead threatens to commit suicide. That's a quite unusual uh, start to a relationship which was going to go on for years, right? It is, but again, you see, I think that's that's part of Hollingshead's makeup. I think he saw something in Leary that he knew that if he pressed that button, um, you know, saying he was going to kill himself, that Leary would respond. And that's what happened. Apparently, according to what Leary said, he was on the verge of um, going for a plane to, to a conference somewhere, I think in Mexico or something, when he got this, this message from... Um, from Hollingshead, and he just said, um, I think, I'm trying to think who was with him at the time, um, it may have been Ralph Metzner who, who was with him, and he basically dropped everything, uh, went to pick uh, Hollingshead up and brought him back to Leary's own house, where basically then Hollingshead moved in. <laughs> um, he just sort of moved him into the top floor and he became sort of a a general assistant uh, to Leary, uh, you know, helping him with his paperwork, helping him with his kids. He was very good at Leary's kids, apparently, uh, and just sort of hanging out there as people came and went. And and Leary at that time had quite a few people coming and going and, you know, they were getting high on a variety of substances. But what was happening was um, Hollingshead was constantly trying to get Leary to try acid and saying, you know, come up to my my room, I've got this bottle of mayonnaise uh, soaked with acid and uh, you really need to try it. And Hollingshead said, no, uh, sorry, Leary said, no, you know, I've I've seen it all with psilocybin. There can't really be much better than that. Um, So anyway, Hollingshead persisted. And the story goes that uh, one winter's night in, um, I think it's late, um, 62, 
Maynard Ferguson, the jazz musician, and his wife Flo were staying at the Learys. They, they had a gig that weekend somewhere in the vicinity and Leary knew them quite well. They stayed there often. So they were staying there and um, Hollingshead uh, sort of got chatty and friendly with them and said, you know, you want to try some of my LSD? And they were very keen to try it because they'd heard about it. So, of course, Hollingshead rushes upstairs, comes back down with his jar, gives them both a spoonful um, and, sit and sits back to watch what happens. Meanwhile, Leary, who's refused a spoonful, is marking some, some exam papers in a corner and the others are just sort of laid back and chatting. And all of a sudden, um, Flo Maynard sort of sits up and just, I think she says something like, uh, oh, baby, you've got to try this this is amazing um, and um, Maynard agrees that yes it is amazing so Leary thinks but I've got to do it. My, my friends are doing it now I've got to do it a bit of peer group pressure I think so he took um, a spoonful of it and you know Leary's descriptions are sort of very similar to Hollingshead's descriptions of that first trip it was just completely blasted off the planet into into realms that, that he couldn't manage couldn't uh, imagine existed and you know the trip even though it was only sort of eight or nine hours seemed to go on for, for centuries and again when Leary came down he, he was mind blown he, he, he just didn't know what to do and it was so um, spun out of it, really, that his, Leary's close friends were, were very concerned about him because he appeared to latch on to Hollingshead as though um, the acid experience had imprinted Hollingshead as a sort of guru figure. And in a couple of, of cases, Leary actually refers to Hollingshead as his guru at the time, and he used to follow him around everywhere. And, you know, people like um, Richard Alpert and, and, and Ralph Metzler and a few others were, were quite worried about this. Um, but Leary sort of slowly get, gets to grips with it and, and starts to use um, acid quite, uh, quite heavily. And, and, you know, then it just expands from there. I mean, and history was made. I mean, a spoonful of sugar, as they say in the song. That's right, you know, the loving spoonful, you know. <laughs> the loving spoonful, of course, yeah. Right, OK, so, I mean, it's an extraordinary uh, uh, image, isn't it, that they're in this house, you know, Leary at this time, even though he's experimenting, you know, he's still marking the exam papers, he's still doing the professor thing, and up in the attic is this this barking, mad, sort of <laughs> suicidal kind of young English guy who's just up there spooning stuff out of his mayonnaise jar, tripping on his own and persuading anybody who can to do it um i mean it, it, and of course their relationship we're not going to go through this right now we'll come back to it but you know their relationship was a strange one wasn't it and it went on you know right through right through to the 80s and it must have been strange even before the acid because as you say that you know if you know if i'd said to you andy will you come and do you know a, 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 do a conversation on the for soho radio and you said no and i'd written back to you and said if you don't i'm going to kill myself <laughs> i mean you, you probably would have said i'm definitely not doing it then right <laughs> so there was something right from the beginning before the acid before this sort of trip together they made some connection something about hollingshead imprinted itself didn't it on you know on leary's psyche that got him interested and you know, made this connection between them, right? Yeah, it was Hollingshead's charisma. It, you know, it's the thing that most people have talked about. People either loved him or hated him. Very few people were sort of, yeah, it was all right, you know, in between. You either took to him or you didn't. And, um, you know, reading things that Ralph Metzner and um, um, Richard Alpert have said about him in the early days, they were fascinated by him. They alternatively thought he was a both a crank um, and, a, a, and a bit of an idiot, but they also saw him as being an absolute genius and, and a, a master magician that'd be able to manipulate people's minds. And he quite 
worried some of them. I mean, he would. Uh, I think there's one particular instance I recount in the book where uh, one evening they're, they're tripping, and um, I think it's Ralph Metzner who starts talking about um, a little village in Switzerland where um, he had relatives, and Hollingshead chimes in and starts to say he knows that village and he knew all about it, and he just kept telling Metzner things about it, and it blew Metzner's mind because he couldn't decide if he was just playing a mind game with him or if he'd actually got that knowledge, and that was typical of Leary. He would just do. He, 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 sorry, typical of Hollingshead. He, he would keep at people with a particular idea or argument or something until basically he thought he'd won. Um, and in the end, I think in that particular instance, uh, Metzner blacked out because he couldn't cope with the the intensity of Hollingshead's um, uh, information and his argument about whether or not he'd been to this particular location. It, he liked playing mind games. And and thing about also about Hollingshead, he obviously found that he could uh, navigate high-dose ex LSD experiences very easily. Now, some people can. I've met some people who, who can function on very, very, very high doses of LSD, whereas a lot of people, they freak out after, you know, 100 micrograms. So Hollingshead had this innate talent to be able to handle, handle acid, and he just used it on everyone around him. He must have been, in some way, you know, either emotionally robust or somehow sort of psychologically immune to the you know the bedevilment that many of us would experience uh, when tripping you know you you describe acid as an emotional amplifier and um, you know for anybody who's slightly anxious like me you know kind of Woody Allen types it's it, you know to be treated with great caution but uh, he didn't seem to have that he seems to be sort of free from anxiety I mean maybe free from a lot of other emotions too but or just emotionally very robust well it, 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 this is debatable, isn't it? You see, his daughter Vanessa told me that, as far as she was concerned, he was a, a sociopath. So I think his ability to um, empathise with the emotions wasn't there. And that was part of his problem, really, because, again, just jumping forward a few years, when he's in London and he's uh, involved with um, Joey Mellon and, and people like that, uh, Joey Mellon uh, said of him that he just didn't understand love. He wanted love and he yearned for it, but he hadn't got the faintest idea about how to get it or how to nurture it and, and so on and so forth. So that is probably why he appeared to be sort of so robust and, and, and strong on acid, because he just didn't care about other people but that said everyone who tripped with him um, said even though it could be difficult it was one of the best people they, they could ever trip with because he, they felt secure in his presence you know he, he had all the archetypes of, of, of the sort of acid guru if you like mm. well and that's very interesting isn't it sort of sociopath slash psychopath I mean there is this I thought it was a kind of just sounds a bit pat doesn't it but the, you know this thing that you know you're born a psychopath you're made a sociopath and, you know, in his case, if you think about those early experiences with his father and stuff, you know, and beating up his mother and stuff, you could you could kind of, that's kind of classic how to become a sociopath stuff, exactly. isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, of course, there is a sort of strength in that, you know, in, in psychopathy, isn't there, that, that you can be highly intelligent and ruthless, strategic, manipulative, but quite immune to the stuff that troubles ordinary mortals. But there's more something more than that. I mean, okay, he is the kind of crazy English guy who's living upstairs in the attic. I mean, not your first choice of babysitter, you know, with his mayonnaise jar spooning it out. But he sees something in Leary, he perseveres, and then Leary ends up taking acid. Okay, there's some peer pressure from Leary's other friends. Maybe that was necessary too from his musician friends, as you mentioned. But Leary does it, and boom. 
his consciousness is blown wide open. And then, I mean, of course, this is an historical moment in terms of the culture, in terms of psychedelic history, but also I think it's it's in just in terms of American history. And, of, uh, you know, because uh, we can come back to Britain and Albion later. I mean, you know, because Timothy Leary and Alpert, you know, and th- what they did with acid, I mean, it did transform the face of 1960s America, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And music, you know, music, art, the culture, yeah. you know, theatre, graphic design, you know, and, and never mind all those kids that sort of like, you know, give up on the on the, the Rockwell version of the future that their middle class parents had planned for them. To head west and some of those people changed the world. It was a tremendous significant event, yeah. right? It, it was. Now, you know, people might say, well, Leary would have got hold of acid anyway, and he may well have done, but that's not the point. He got hold of acid from Hollingshead, and it was that that triggered the massive social changes in, in America. And because um, it, it was uh, Leary that he targeted, and Leary was very much a, you know, give acid to the people sort of person, um, that really helped it spread. If it had gone to anyone else, or if perhaps Leary had got hold of it much later, it might not have uh, penetrated American society quite as uh, pervasively and quickly as it did in the mid-60s. Yeah, because you've got Aldous Huxley, another Brit, but a posh, intellectual, rather elitist Brit, as you say. You know, he didn't see LSD as something for the masses, unlike Soma, of course, in his uh, famous dystopian, utopian novel for the future, and the drug which was, you know, kept the masses down. He saw this as something for the elite, whereas, uh, I don't know whether Hollingshead had a view on that at the time or not, but Leary certainly did see it as something for the masses. He saw it as a mechanism, as a channel to transform society, and that's what he tried to do, right? He did, yes. I mean, the thing about Leary was... um he was a contrarian, you know, he had been all his life. He, he, he spent years, several years in West Point not being spoken to by any other person in that establishment because he, was, um, he wouldn't sort of play the game. So he liked being difficult. And I think when Hollingshead had turned him on uh, to, to the... Yeah, well, this is a way to, in a way, get my own back on, on the, 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 the establishment in America. And you've also got to remember Leary was kicked out of, of Harvard uh, not long after because the Harvard authorities didn't like what was going on with, with, um, with acid there and so he had a bit of um a bit of an axe to grind i think so i think partly his his um his zeal to spread it came uh, because he was anti-authoritarian anti-establishment and he wanted to undermine uh, the, the western way of life and there are many clips of leary talking about you know you need to turn on uh, uh, tune in turn on and drop out and and that was like you know the mantra of, of the 60s and 70s for, for many young people um, and and that's exactly what uh, what happened and you know hollingshead was was instrumental in making that happen right so they're in the house uh, uh, leary's turned on and, and and you know this whole psychedelic wave is now in motion so what happens with with Hollingshead and Leary and what what's the next part of their life together like? um, well they, they start running um, LSD experiments with, with with various people and um, Leary starts to develop his theories about you know consciousness and so on and so forth and they were getting on on swimmingly and Hollingshead was being paid a monthly uh, sort of stipend for for his assistance uh, with Leary and then they had one of their many fallings out over the years um, and basically what happened was uh, Leary had, had gone somewhere and um, Hollingshead wanted to go um, I think he was to Jamaica for a holiday and he got he, he had a cheque 
written which he said was validated by Leary and I think he faked Leary's signature on the back and in those days you could just submit a cheque and people would accept it. Anyway the cheque bounced uh, and Leary found out about it and that caused a huge rift. Uh, another thing that caused a huge rift with him at that time was uh, Leary paid for Hollingshead to go to a, a conference about psilocybin on the continent somewhere run by um, Eileen Garrett, the, the famous um, uh, parapsychologist. So he was paid for that, but Eileen Garrett also paid him as well. And when Leary found out that basically Hollingshead had been double paid, he felt ripped off. And so they uh, they, they parted and Hollingshead came back to, uh, to Britain for um, for a year or so and living in various places, uh, doing various things. He hooked back up with um, um, Alex Trockey and also with Brian Barrett and it's around this time that um, he dabbled with heroin before and he dabbled with uh, with speed before but his association with um, Alex Trockey and, and people uh, really got him into uh, taking uh, heroin and speed and what was beginning to happen was he started taking speed along with acid because um, the idea there was acid can just distort time so much that seconds can, on, on high doses, seconds can feel like eternities. Well, add a bit of speed into that mix and you've got some forward propulsion and that sort of changes the experience so you're not quite as lost, if you, if you see what I mean. You know, you've, you've... <laughs> I don't really see what you mean, but I'm sort of getting a flavour. The words are making sense, but I'm just trying to, ima just trying to imagine it. It's... It, it. It's hard to explain. I mean, you know, fundamentally, on high-dose acid of the sort that was around in the 90, early, early 60s, you could feel as though you'd been away for literally years or centuries, and it would feel like that. And a lot of people like that a lot of people didn't. So add some methadrine into, into the equation and that, that gives you the motive power to go forward whilst you're still having this mind-blowing experience. And that of course then con gives its own problems because it was taking so much um, acid and, and heroin and speed, that, uh, acid and, and speed, that he found it difficult to calm down. So it was introducing heroin into the mix the day after to come down with, and alcohol as well. So very slowly in the sort of mid to uh, early to mid 60s, he, um, you know, his alcoholism, which had always been there, uh, increased, and he was getting a speed and a heroin habit as well. That's heavy fuel. I think, you know, as, as you said, uh, you know, you, so you've got acid, speed, heroin, alcohol cannabis right as you said what could possibly go wrong you know with, with that kind of that kind of mix um i mean how often were they doing acid though i mean with leary and stuff did it become a daily thing for those guys i mean uh, not daily but but at least once a week uh, without a doubt uh, and, and later on when we get to talk about millbrook it, it was much more and much more intense than that so what what happened uh, around the so i think it was about 1963 time um hollings had came back from uh London to America because his friend um, John Beresford was setting up a psychedelic clinic called Agora um, in, in New York and it was supposed to be like a therapeutic centre and it, 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 they got some funding from a, um, a philanthropist and it set up this, uh, this sort of um, office suite so it had a reception room, it had um, uh, basically a tripping room that was all tricked out with you know nice furnishings carpets artwork and so on and so forth 
fantastically good sound system and and all that and people would go there for sort of therapeutic sessions um and you know there's many records of people having gone there and, and how it helped them anyway Hollingshead just turned up there one day and just basically muscled in and said i'm living here and used one of the rooms as his, his bedroom now john beresford uh, by all accounts was uh, a buddhist he was very um very calm very kind uh, didn't believe in sort of intervening in things and essentially let Hollingshead walk all over him um, and within six or seven months Hollingshead had completely ruined Agora even worse Beresford said that he knew that Hollingshead had arranged for his phones to be tapped by the uh, by the FBI because he saw one of the phone taps yet was so um, non-interventionist that he chose to do nothing about it and that's interesting because because if Hollingshead was doing that, this is yet another one of the, those um, events that give rise to the uh, the notion that it might have been some form of um, you know deep state agent or something like that. My version of it is that he probably did it because it was a way of getting him off something that he'd been caught doing in America, and he probably said, "Well, if I can tap Beresford's phone, you know, will you let me off whatever sentence you were going to give Incredibly me?" Incredibly self-serving. I mean. We know, of course, that the American authorities and, you know, the instruments and the institutions like the CIA and FBI were extremely alarmed at what was happening to uh, youth culture in America and were taking steps to disrupt it, if not destroy and infiltrate it. So they got hold of Hollingshead and purely selfishly to get off a rap of some sort, some legal rap that he'd kind of agreed to cooperate and then he was going to help them bug one of his best friends who the guy who got him to america and was putting him up and feeding him and (laughs) i mean it's that's quite astonishing i mean we are in psychopath territory then now definitely i think definitely i mean the thing is i could never find evidence that he'd been arrested for something in the states that he was using that to get off with but i can think of no other reason why he would have arranged for beresford's um uh, agora center to be uh, tapped if it wasn't for his own leverage for, for some reason um, and it's also quite startling that, that, that Beresford didn't just rip the, the phone tap out and, and you know confront Hollingshead we know which he didn't and it's not that Beresford himself was just getting paranoid as has been known to happen with people taking lots of yeah. drugs no not paranoid because he actually saw the um, you know the, the mechanism if you like he, he describes it in in, um, in something he wrote so there's no doubt about it that his phone was being tapped um, and so that all fell apart and um, Hollingshead drifted off again he, he went to various places including back to um back to london again where he he did some broadcasting for the bbc apparently which i've never been able to track down other than the references to it um and and all the time and you've got to remember that this is like it's well over 50 years ago there was no internet there was no mobile phones and yet hollingshead was, was a master communicator he used he wrote prolifically wrote letters two or three a day to all all kinds of people. He used his phone a lot transatlantically. So he was always really on top of what was going on. And he heard about, um, he heard about Leary uh, setting up something in this place called Millbrook in upstate, upstate New York. And he thought, ooh, got to have some of this. So he hopped on a plane, arrived at Millbrook and introduced himself to Leary and said, basically, can I hang out here and Leary who was ever forgiving of Hollingshead and forgave him over and over again over the years said yeah sure come on in and he became their resident um, psychedelic joker if if you like for all the various things that took place there. So one of the words that you've used to describe him is is trickster actually isn't it and uh, I I suppose those 
that combination of a moral, an amoral character at the same time somebody who could be incredibly good to be around and but also could totally untrustworthy. I mean, that is the kind of trickster archetype, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. They needed that then, they needed that there. Yes, they, they did. And I mean, you know, Leary's thing at Millbrook was to set up a centre where people could go and pay for high-dose sessions with Leary or one of the other main people there so they could see what a high-dose session was like and take that back to, you know, to whatever scene they were involved in. And they were doing all sorts of strange things like um, uh, practising um, uh, techniques that Gurdjieff had, had, had um, evolved for sort of social behaviours and things like that. They were basically a commune trying to lead a completely different life which was underpinned by, by psychedelic drugs. And initially, everything seemed to be sort of working out all right. And, you know, every Saturday night, without fail, there'd be a, a huge meeting in, in one of the big rooms there, big log fire there'd be 10 or 12 people that all take you know possibly at least a thousand micrograms of acid and Leary would guide them on some mysterious journey and Hollingshead would, would be around and he'd be manipulating the light show or the slides or occasionally just freaking people out by turning up outside bouncing up and down um, on a strobe lit trampoline wearing a kilt which you know just was just you know a mind blast for people who'd gone there for some form of religious or spiritual experience um, but uh, people liked him because of that because he was unpredictable he was fun you know he, he knew how to handle a trip and again one of his favorite trips there was to say to a small party of people do you want to meet um you know the, the, the sort of person who was at the center of everything you know the, the ultimate um, guru if you like and of course they'd go yeah 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 so get them all completely loaded up on, on acid and take them on a tour of millbrook's um cellars and underground tunnels for, for an hour or two and they'd be going in darkness with candlelight and shuffling through narrow um, um spaces and hollingshead would be telling them all sorts of stories until he finally brought them to the end and said right this is it just see this and he'd, he'd unveil a mirror and they'd see themselves and depending on where you were at in your trip you'd think wow yes <laughs> or oh my god no <laughs> yeah so this this trickster archetype that he just seems to occupy it's very important particularly uh, as you say later when he comes back to England um, Leary is very serious isn't he in many ways he's like he's esoteric he's Tibetan Book of the Dead. He's, you know, he's Gurdjieff. He's, he's, you know, set and setting, and it's, you know, laying out a, a sort of ro a route plan and a map for your trip, and it, you know, fasting, and he's he's approaching it as a kind of spiritual discipline. And I suppose I suppose that Hollingshead provides a foil to that. He's the guy who's outside the window with a strobe and a kilt bouncing up and down on a trampoline. So it's a kind of, he's providing a, some sort of foil to to Leary, which I'm assuming that Leary himself really valued. Um, that appears to be the case. Um, and, and Hollingshead was quite formal in, in, in many of his trips, although he could play, play the trickster. But... Um, what was happening was, uh, at a period of time in, uh, when when Hollingshead was at Millbrook, Leary got married and went to India on his honeymoon. Now, when that happened, that's when the rot set in, because basically the sort of spiritual side of Millbrook uh, dropped away, and it became um, a lot of competing people seeing basically how high they could get and how high they could stay for how long. Um, and, for instance, there, there was a bowling alley, or a, a place they called the bowling alley, on the Millbrook estate, and... Um, Leary and um, I think Alpert and some of the others just holed up there for two or three weeks and just took acid 
all day. They just kept upping the dose. They were taking thousands of micrograms at a time just to see how high they could get and, and how high they could stay. So it was basically just basically a pissing contest with psychedelics, right. if you, if you so like. So Leary is in India doing the spiritual thing, but Hollingshead and Alpert, Ramdas as he became, they're, they're sort of back home just going hell for leather, heading for the psychic horizon. That's right, yeah. And then there were lots of other people who were joining in it as well. And it, it was all getting very fraught and, ten, you know, there were factions forming and Milbrook couldn't operate it as it, as it wanted to. Um, and it was all falling apart. And also at this time, Hollingshead was sending... Um, Leary acid uh, to India, so he had something to, to, to eat while he was there, basically. So he was keeping him supplied. Um, Leary came back in, in, in the spring of 65, I think it was, and realised that, that things weren't right and, and they needed to, to be sorted out. So, again, the legend has it is that um, Leary, Metzner and Alpert conjured up this idea that uh, Hollingshead should go to London in the autumn of 1965 and basically create a vanguard there for the American psychedelic experience which would uh, be exemplified in on East, in Easter 1966 when Leary would come over they were going to hire the Royal Albert Hall and various other big uh, places in cities across Europe and, and spread the gospel and Leary's expectation was that everyone would sort of fall beneath his sway and you know he'd be an even bigger guru than he, than he was in America. So the psychedelic movement in America is not in full flood yet, we're not at the summer of love etc but it's gone into the culture thanks to a large extent to uh, Leary and Alpert, you could say to Hollingshead, and the sort of earthquake is is beginning. The transformation is coming. That's right. I mean, um, the first. Uh, it's difficult to say how acid actually got out to the masses in the early 60s um, in America. Um, some was leaking out from the, the hospitals that were, that were using it for psychotherapeutic purposes, um, but there wasn't a, an actual illicit LSD lab in America until 1963. So. It was being manufactured uh, illegally for the masses then, and then there were more labs set up between 63 and 66, and by 1966 it was sort of fairly widely available if you knew who to talk to, you know, in the major the major cities and out on the on the west coast. So there was a scene developing, you know, the, the remnants of the um, of the beatnik scene were, were hooking onto acid and, and thinking it was amazing, and the whole hippie thing that we come to new, know later had its had its genesis there there's the whole kool-aid acid test thing with ken kesey is that or is that a bit a little bit later um that's slightly that's sort of 65 I, I think but but that is interesting because what was happening as more and more people outside the medical and educational and scientific establishments were taking acid um the ways of of taking it and, and dealing with it were changing some people were very very committed to the to the leery formal you know fast for a day before sit in a circle read sacred texts all that sort of thing whereas others like ken kesey and and other people on the on the west coast were more of a no let's just take this and just see what happens and have a mind blast and that's where the um the acid tests came from lots of people in one place all on high doses of acid just doing whatever came to them naturally um i suppose a very embryonic version of a rave maybe but you know on a lot more drugs yeah and there's that connection with the beat generation neil cassidy who's dean moriarty in kerouac's on the road he's the driver of ken kesey's bus and the merry pranksters are going around just giving acid out randomly yeah that's right yes they, they, they were just giving it to anyone who would, who would ask and not saying this is how you should deal with it mm. just see what happens now you know 90 percent of the time that that almost certainly worked out all right and people had a ball of the time but when it went wrong you know there are various um 
uh, tape recordings and, and, and some video of people freaking out on acid and it's not a pretty sight and I mean you know anyone who's had a really bad trip on acid knows it's not a, a good thing so that was the downside to it and I think you know you've always got to um, bear in mind that there was a downside to the psychedelic experience. And Leary, of course, is, but he's much more, he's got this vision, he's got this vision for acid transforming society in a much more structured, formal way. Um, and he is going to send Hollingshead back to London. I think, you you know, you talk about it as probably mixed motives. Part of it is, okay, this, this is the next step, you know, building the bridgehead to Europe to take this psychedelic acid revolution to the masses of Europe. Also, there's, there's a bit of it is, let's just get Hollingshead out of here because he's, like, unbearable at times. So it's a combination of things. So they, they sort of, like, talk him into going back to London, or London on a more sort of permanent basis anyway with this mission. Yes. I mean, basically, I think it was, um, uh, I think it might be in September or October 1965, uh, the, the Leary, Albert and Metzner took um, Hollingshead to, to the docks, um, gave him a, a load of acid to take to Britain and loaded him up with a load of copies of Tibetan Book of the Dead and so forth and waved him off on a, on a ship to Britain. And, you know, um, the sort of legend has it that um, Leary or one of the others said to each other, well, that's put psychedelic research back another 10 years sending him to Britain but at least he's got rid of him from, from us <laughs> Yeah, you can sympathise um, Let's leave it there Let's leave him there on the ship heading back towards the shores and we'll hear more uh, tales of the Divine Rascal uh, next time when he's back in Albion Thank you so much Andy for this yeah, Thank you very much Steve It was a pleasure You can check out Andy's book The Divine Rascal on Strangers Tractor Press It's amazing Check us out on www.bureauoflostculture.com Hear you next time Remember Watch out for the bad acid. Have a safe trip. <laughs>